Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for today's episode with the one and only Moby. Moby is, as many of you know, an incredible musician. He's sold over 20 million records worldwide. His album Play was one of the seminal albums of my teenage years. Uh, I grew up with an absolute love for his music. And I've had the great pleasure of getting to know him pretty well over the last few years. We met um, at the Wolf Connection uh, through a mutual friend, and um, subsequently he invited us very graciously to his uh, vegan restaurant, Little Pine, and we we sort of started an informal men's group. So I've been getting together with him and and an incredible group of men uh, pretty regularly for the last several years and have come to know him and his uh, his values and his stand and his intellect. And I was really um, excited to sit down with him and have a conversation. And we go deep uh, and we go in some very non-traditional uh, aspects of, of life and his belief system. We talk actually, this is this, this album that this conversation was recorded before the coronavirus was announced. But interestingly enough, the conversation is extraordinarily salient because we talk a lot about uh, society, about social structures, about um, God, if you will, about human consciousness, about the evolution of, of that consciousness and the requisite, the requisite evolution necessary to sort of steer the ship in, in, the, in, in a more balanced direction, if you will, and, uh, and also delve deeply into his personal story. I think you'll find a tremendous amount of value in this episode. I, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I thought it was uh, fantastic, and it was great to do it at Moby's uh, home studio, which was just an oasis and reminded me that he actually took out his pool to, uh, he, you know, he said he didn't want that sort of dead space and, and reorganized it with an incredibly verdant uh, natural garden with a lot of native trees. And sitting there preparing for the interview, I just felt this is this is what I'd like in life. I'd love to have a space that feels like this. Really, really just a clean aesthetic surrounded by trees. Felt like we're in the middle of a forest. And, uh, and that connection to nature I know is dear to his heart as a, as a passionate uh, animal rights advocate and is something that's uh, very, very pa- uh, you know, close to my heart as, uh, as a lover of nature and, uh, and finding sort of the cathedral in the wild. So I think you'll, you'll get a tremendous amount of value out of this conversation. I wanted to, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that today is my dear father, John Trainers, would have been his 82nd birthday. He passed away one month ago. Um, I've spoken a bit about it on the podcast. Um, obviously, he was my heart. If you know me well, you know that he was a man of tremendous integrity, tremendous grace, tremendous humility. He lived his life with the desire to make other people feel valued, seen, and heard. That was how he showed up in the world. So I just want to honor you, Dad. I love you with all my heart. And uh, I'll carry you forward from this day on uh, forevermore in my heart. And I'm so grateful for everything you've shown me through all these years. So thank you guys so much for listening. I am also doing uh, a tribute well in his honor uh, through Charity Water, which is an organization where 100% of the proceeds, in fact, more than 100%, they even cover the cost uh, of your credit card transaction. 
go directly to the field. And I know my dad would be proud to create a, a well for clean water and sanitation for communities in need. This particular well is going to be in Ethiopia. My dad was a huge lover of the African continent. And so I'll link to it uh, below or if you Google John Trainer legacy, um, even a, a few dollars would mean the world to me. And we'll go to provide clean water to uh, communities in need, especially in this urgent time where water and sanitation are so critical. So sending you guys so much love, so much gratitude. And without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce Moby. All right. I'm here with my friend Moby. Moby, it's wonderful to be with you. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah. Uh, we're in your beautiful studio, which I love because uh, it's entirely surrounded by nature. Not long ago, you took out your, your, your pool, yeah, to make it an oasis? Yeah, it's funny because I grew up in suburban Connecticut, and I grew up poor white trash. You know, my mom and I were on food stamps and welfare, but I grew up in one of the wealthiest towns in the United States, Darien, yep. Connecticut. So a lot of my friends had swimming pools. And when I was growing up, I fetishized swimming pools, you know, like, and I just thought if I ever had a swimming pool, I would be the happiest person in the world and I would use it every day. Years later, I moved to Los Angeles. I have a really beautiful swimming pool and it just sits there. Yeah. And so as a result, like year after year, I was staring at this stupid swimming pool and realizing like eventually I realized a swimming pool that doesn't get used is just a concrete box filled with dead water. <laughs> you know? And then I thought like, rather than keep this big expanse of dead water and concrete, why not get rid of it and plant trees? So that's what I did. And it was funny when I looked into doing that, my contractor was so baffled. He was like, are, are, are you sure? Because the thing with removing a swimming pool, it's really expensive. Yes. And it took a long time because you have to like tear out the concrete and then tear out the rebar, which is under the concrete, and then bring in tons and tons literally of soil and then trees. And, and in so doing and spending all this money, you make your house worthless. You know, like, so I, I basically, not worthless, but worth less. less. So I, by tearing out my pool and replacing it with forest, I probably spent, I don't know, $50,000 doing it and reduced the value of my property probably by $100,000. So it's fiscally really dumb, but it makes me so happy to just like look at trees yeah. and know that you know, I'm turning CO2 into oxygen. You know, like the trees that I have are now cooling the air and they're providing home for birds and insects and animals. So it's like, it's just a much better use of outdoor space. And also, largely, it's funny, I think a lot of people move to LA for different reasons. Mm -hmm. The main reason I moved here was because it's one of the only urban environments that actually is integrated with nature. Yeah. You know, people think of LA, they don't think of nature. But it really is. Like, drive around almost any big city, and you see concrete. Totally. Drive around L.A., and you, like, there's traffic, there's smog, but there's also, like, flowers and trees. Yeah. And that's largely why I'm here. Yeah, I remember reading, I think you wrote an article um, before we really met and knew each other about moving from New York to L.A. And it resonated with me because I made the same move. I slowly, I got a place here, and I was in New York and, and, and hustling. And I just I came to the realization for me it was as simple as I feel like you know how you feel about a place when you're landing. 
And for me, whenever I land in New York, it was like, put the armor on, you know, like, hmm. let's get ready to go. Like, it wasn't bad, but I, I never felt comfortable. Whereas, like, flying into L.A. and looking out and seeing the nature, seeing the mountains, seeing the ocean, oftentimes the sun setting over the Pacific, it always feels to me like an exhale. And that's actually what I mentioned to you when I, when I came into your place today, was like, oh, man, it feels like a deep exhale. And that's... that's uh, it's it's incredible. I mean, I, I, it's definitely aligned with my my values and what I wanted to get out of being here in LA. So, one of the questions I actually had, you mentioned your your youth. One of the things I love about your story is you kind of came from very humble beginnings and then ascended to, if you will, the echelon that many people aspire to as it relates to success, and yet did not, in my research and in our conversations, did not in that success find fulfillment. And so I'm curious, I'm curious to hear a bit more about that journey. Um, I know that, I know that you, you grew from very humble beginnings and, and we're, we're putting out a tremendous amount of music. You always had a great work ethic, but what led to like, while you're in New York, what was it like when play, and I know you had success before play, but what was it like to go from, I know you had you had album, then you did a punk album. What was it like to finally hit that sort of catalytic uh, rise? Well, when I was growing up, um, you know, my mom was, you know, a painter who was too shy to show people her paintings. Um, everyone in my family did something creative, but rarely with any semblance of success. And so I assumed... I would follow in those footsteps, and I was okay with that. I, would, I, I assumed that I would be a musician who was going to make music that no one ever listened to. Mm. You know, I wanted people to listen to the music I was making, but I didn't ever for a second expect it. And the genres I worked in, you know, I grew up playing punk rock and new wave. At the time, no one listened to that. And then I got involved in weird electronic music. No one listened to that. So I wasn't picking genres that had a lot of commercial viability. Mm. And then in the 90s, I started to, I got signed to a record label and I started to sell records and tour and license music to films. And it was really exciting. But by the end of the 90s, it had all sort of fallen apart. And the last, what I thought was going to be my last album was the album Play. Mm -hmm. And so it came out when I was, what, 32 years old, I think? 31, 32 years old. And I thought my career was done. Yeah. And it came out and, you know, went on to sell, oh, I think, 10 plus million copies. And it's, it's funny that if I was a cool, credible, you know, indie musician, I would say that having a lot of success didn't affect me and I didn't care. But I cared. I thought it was going to fix every problem I'd ever have. Like suddenly I was being invited to celebrity parties and I was going to dinners with, you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton and I was traveling around the world and doing really fancy things. And I thought finally I had arrived. And what I learned through that and also through just like alcoholism and drug addiction and making lots of really terrible choices was the old truism, you can't fix internal issues with externalities. You know, I wanted to. You know, I wanted all of my existential issues, my specific individual human issues to be fixed by fame. Mm. And 
I tried so hard, so like to, to make that happen. And when it and when fame was sort of like being taken away from me, I was so upset. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, okay, fame hasn't fixed anything, but how dare you take it away from me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then slowly time passed, and I just realized like, oh, look at the evidence. Like, look at the people. Look at famous people and how happy they are, you know, and and like all these happy famous people like Kurt Cobain, Ernest Hemingway, Michael Jackson. Um, I mean, like, clearly fame does not fix anything. Does not equate. It just all it does is make people mentally ill and entitled and usually more often than not destroys them or compromises them seriously. Yeah. So fame is almost like something to be you can learn from it. And if you can endure it and come out the other side, it can be really good because it gives you an interesting perspective. But it certainly doesn't fix anything. No. It, I was When I was doing my research, I was looking at the – you had mentioned a conversation you'd had with Jim Carrey. And I, and I had heard previously Jim Carrey say something to the effect of, I wish everyone could be famous mm-hmm. and, and, and wealthy to know that it's not the answer. And I feel like – it's interesting because we're in this microclimate where so many people are using social media and various other platforms to chase that rabbit. And it's fascinating to actually sit down with someone who's had that, who's had the fame, the wealth, and all the things most people aspire to and chase their entire lives. And yet to say, I've been there and it wasn't the mountaintop, so to speak. But yet also, which was fascinating, I don't want to skip over it, you mentioned it wasn't the answer, but I also didn't like seeing it slip away. Mm-hmm. And I and I know for me, in my own humble way, but like with Global Citizen, and I and I know I remember Elizabeth Gilbert reading her book Big Magic, where she talked about she had Eat, Pray, Love, which became this insane success. Like Play was such an insane success. Mm-hmm. And to know, it may never, maybe a book she writes from then on out will never be that big, quote unquote, in terms of a commercial success. And many people actually get. Uh, into a place where they can never create again because the, the, it will always be in the shadow of that profound success. What was your psychology after that level of success? And you talked a little bit about not wanting to see it take away, taken away, um, but how, how did you cope with success and then the, 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 the sort of flip side of success? Uh, I mean... So the album Play and then the follow-up album to 18 and Hotel, they all did really well, yeah. um, especially overseas. Like 18 and Hotel didn't do great here, but like overseas they were as big as Play. And, but I was chasing the dragon, mm-hmm. you know? And, and as I started to realize that empirically fame, as I said, was like both being taken away from me and wasn't making me happy, I chased it harder, you know, so I drank more and I became more degenerate and I did more drugs and I had bigger parties to try and like, you know, at that old analogy of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, <laughs> you know, so like, yep. or, you know, like an example of you have some finance guy who lives on Park Avenue in a four bedroom apartment and he has a 40 year old wife and he's unhappy. So he thinks, oh, I need a five bedroom apartment and a 30 year old wife. And then he's unhappy. So he's like, I need a six bedroom apartment and a 20 year old wife. Where the truth is you need to stop expecting things outside of yourself to fix the problems inside yourself, you know? And so I kept doing, I did the musician version of that, you know, like just kept trying to fix, you know, like I, I, 
thought that maybe real estate would work, so I bought some crazy houses, and I realized, oh, I'm just as miserable in these crazy houses as I was in the abandoned factory. I first, In fact, I was happier in the abandoned factory than I was in a five-level penthouse overlooking Central Park. Mm. Um, and then it was the slow, grudging realization that what I was doing and my assumptions weren't working. Mm. And it creates a very fascinating... I don't know if dynamics the right word, process, where, and I think a lot of people stay in bad relationships or, or keep holding on to bad behavior because something happens. It's almost like a relay race. When you like transition from the bad to the good, mm. there's a purgatory in between. And even if the bad is bad, it's familiar. Right. You know? And so it's really hard to leave the bad relationship, leave the bad assumptions, leave the bad behavior because it's familiar and you just don't know what you're going to replace it with. So like when I got sober, I was terrified because I was like, what I was like, you to getting sober. Like what being, was the catalyst? Being, being an alcoholic. Yeah. But um, was there, was there like a, a rock bottom? Like, Cause I, I mean, I, I read, you know, you were consuming like man, quite a quantity of alcohol. Uh, you know, the stories are actually amazing uh, in terms of like the, the level at which you're willing to share transparently. But but what for you, like, when was it like, okay, this is definitely not working and I need to, like, shift? It, there was no one moment. Mm. It was more the cumulative weight of a lot of evidence. Mm. You know, it was years and years and years of just being sick and hungover and miserable and finally admitting to myself, like, oh, this isn't getting better. Yeah. And, it, and, and I tried every possible permutation of quasi-sobriety to fix it and it didn't work. And the only thing I could do was complete abstinence because if you're my type of alcoholic, you can't practice moderation. Yeah. But there's that moment, you know, when you give up the familiar for the unknown. You know, the familiar might be killing you, but it's familiar. And then giving it up for the unknown is so hard. So I understand why people hold on to bad behavior and why people stay in bad relationships. And, you know, but, and I wish there was a way of sort of like shepherding people from the familiar dark to the unfamiliar light because our culture obviously is not benefiting from people continuing to do the same old bad stuff over and over again. Yeah, no question. I think that's one of the things that's been fascinating for me getting to know you is that you've taken, you've definitely taken the Robert Frost, and you're obviously extremely intelligent, but you've definitely taken the road less traveled insofar as, one, you ascended to a level that few people touch, but also chose out of it in a way. I mean... I, see, I, I want to agree with you because I like the idea of giving myself some credit for making that choice. Mm. I didn't choose the road less traveled I was dragged onto it, you know, like, like, like every, like even growing up, like when I was young, I embraced like punk rock and weird music yeah. only because like the cool kids wouldn't let me hang out with them. Mm. I ended up falling in love with punk rock and weird music. But like, if you had given me a choice when I was 13 between like, you know, shaving my head and playing Sex Pistols covers or hanging out with the cool kids and dating some cool high school girl and playing in a Grateful Dead cover band, I would have chosen that because sure. that was like safe. and So basically, 
everything I wanted, I eventually got kicked out of. <laughs> you know, and so Fair it's enough. like, you know, the Robert Frost poem implies some sort of like integrity and volition, and I don't know if I've ever had either. That's interesting. So, because I want to push into that a little bit, I I resonate with the humility and and the sort of self-effacing uh, quality, and I and I can relate to that. Like sometimes we choose into actually what we're presented with and the hand we're dealt. And interesting, it sounds like you weren't dealt, say, the best cards to start with, and then you wound up having quite a good hand, but it was a hand that wound up uh, costing you quite a lot. But but the but the to the piece of integrity, my sense of you is you're now a stand for something way bigger than yourself. In other words, I remember, so, you know, you and I get together and we have this wonderful kind of men's dinner at your place at Little Pine. But also in researching for this episode, I, I remember listening and you actually saying something to the effect of, if it was my life, if I could sacrifice my life to save the lives, and I'm, I may be, forgive me, I may, I may be messing this up, but to save the lives of countless animals mm-hmm. or, or to be a st- You wouldn't even think twice. You'd, you'd do I, it in a heart. I might think twice, but I'd still yeah, do it. You'd still do it. Yeah. In essence, and to me, that's the traditional notion. You know, we have a, we have a kind of a codified notion of the warrior now, which I f- feels more like a conquistador than, than, than actually a true traditional sense of a warrior, which was a, a willingness to sacrifice and stand for something bigger than yourself. And to me, you actually exemplify that. You are you are willing to stand for something bigger than yourself. And you, and that, to me, is also exemplified in the fact that, like, as I understand it, you know, all the proceeds, music now is, is sort of your passion, and you still make music, but, like, all the proceeds from your restaurant, all the proceeds from your projects go to the something bigger than yourself. Not In other words, not your self-interest. Yeah. Luckily, I mean, a lot of what I work on is not very profitable. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's pretty easy to say. I mean, the truth is I give more than 100% of the profits of the things I work on to charity. Yeah. But it's at least 100% of the profits of you know, the music I work on, my restaurant, books I've written. But as you were talking, I realized because for me – it just makes sense. Yeah. You know, like being a drunk, drug addicted, degenerate, that made sense. Mm-hmm. When it was working, it just simply like, I think I'm, in my mind, there's this clear logic. I was like, oh, being a degenerate who lives on tour and has an assistant whose only job is throwing parties, like that made sense. Until I realized it no longer made sense. Mm-hmm. And now the idea of putting other causes ahead of my own concerns like that just makes sense to me so in in a way there i don't see no for me personally i don't see nobility around that Mm -hmm. and i'm not being self i'm not being self-deprecating or self-effacing i'm just saying like to me it just it just makes sense Mm -hmm. um it's kind of like i was hiking with a friend recently we were up in angeles national forest and there was a snake that we could see, it was like, it's hard to describe, but there was this weird little stone area and there was a snake in this stone area and I could tell it was stuck. Mm. And so I jumped down to try and help this snake get out. It was like a five foot rattlesnake. (laughs) And I jumped down to try and help this snake get out of this stone area, just to sort of like scare it into what I could see was like where it needed to go. Cause there was, it was clearly yeah, you, I, you could just tell it was anxious and it was stuck. And afterwards, my friend was like, that was so brave. And I was like, no, it wasn't because I'm not afraid. 
Like bravery involves doing the thing you're afraid of. Mm. For some reason, I'm not afraid of snakes. Mm. I don't want to get bitten by them necessarily, but I just, I've. It, so it's like nobility to me is painful self-sacrifice, as opposed to what I think I'm doing is just logical self-sacrifice. So I don't. I just don't see it as. Like again, it just makes sense to me. Right. And I and that that does resonate in that it, it feels like you're, you've you've turned a page such that obviously your true north is is totally different from your what your true north was when you were in. But I would also sorry for interrupting, but I also say there's also an academic aspect to that. Okay. Like meaning you and I are sitting here, we're very comfortable. I assume we've both slept reasonably well over the last twenty four hours. We've probably eaten enough calories recently. Like we're in pretty good shape. Yes. It's very easy for me to say, like, oh, yes, I'd be willing to sacrifice myself. I might feel very different if push came to shove. And, like, if you were holding a gun to my head, I might suddenly be a little less inclined to want to sacrifice myself. So there is sort of, like, contextual, circumstantial, or some variables that it's – I don't want to dismiss them because – there, we are sort of having an academic conversation. Yeah, yeah. In the hierarchy of needs, we're both we're both in a place of of of, of comfort, and so therefore, it's in some ways a privilege. But but what I would say is, I think it's interesting that you found that that the true north was in that the, the fulfillment lied for you in the service, as opposed to the self absorption, which I think many people look to find their purpose in. In other and, words, I and also I tried. Yeah, I really <laughs> I tried. Sound like you gave it a real good college effort. I was so good at being a selfish degenerate, <laughs> but just not for very long. Right. You know, it was completely unsustainable. But I really tried. I mean, like, I went as far with selfishness and degeneracy as almost anybody could ever possibly go, and it didn't work. Yes. So then I was like, okay. What now? And I started looking around and I just realized like, okay, so like how do I rationally assess, you know, the world I live in, my life, what's important? And it, it all just it, – it, and there's an emotional component as well, but it all just felt very rational to yes. me in a way. Especially when you like – when you realize that like feral – irrational choices haven't worked out very well, it's kind of becomes easier to then look at the more sort of like calm, rational choices. Like it's easier to engage your prefrontal cortex when you've lived in your limbic system for way too long. Mm. What was it like to build that muscle of, of being in the prefrontal cortex from, from a limbic reality? It's, it's both great and frustrating. Mm. And heartbreaking because the great part, and this is, I hope this doesn't sound too presumptuous, but the great part is it feels right. Mm. Like it just like, especially like if I could, it's kind of like getting sober. Like if I could have said when I was considering sobriety that half of the times I drank, I drank in moderation and it was fine, I never would have gotten sober. So I looked at that evidence and I realized 100% of the times I drank, I drank compulsively And so I was like, okay, I'm an alcoholic. Let me reject that old behavior. The same thing with selfishness. If I could say that my selfishness had really been meaningful and created lasting happiness or benefit for anybody, I could have held on to it longer. But the truth is it was just just a dumpster fire, you know? (laughs) And so then when you – 
arrive at this place of like ostensible, not selflessness, but like, you know, prioritizing service, it's easy when you've tried the opposite and it failed, hmm. you know? Hmm. Um, and so, it, but then the frustrating part is, you know, the world we live in and the, which is being destroyed, it's being destroyed by cluelessness. You know, it's not being destroyed by malice. It's being destroyed completely by seven and a half billion people working under terrible clueless assumptions. Mm. You know, what are those assumptions in your view? Uh, the assumption that the familiar needs to pre- be preserved. You know, like when people say like, oh, well, my ancestors ate meat. I should eat meat. It's like your ancestors had slaves. Should you have slaves? You know, mm. your grandparents smoke cigarettes. Should you be smoking cigarettes? Um, like, In philosophy, it's called the is-ought fallacy, you know, to try and justify something that is because either it has been or people believe it should continue to be, like it's just really fallacious. Um, But some other examples would be people saying like, well, we've always had war, we should continue to have war or we will continue to have war. It's like, no, we could stop it right now. Mm -hmm. You know, every single problem facing humanity has been created and sustained by humanity. So imagine, rather than deal with this mass of seven and a half billion people, imagine if you knew one individual and that individual was destroying themselves and everyone around them. Wouldn't you at some point pull them aside and say like, look, you're only miserable because you're making yourself miserable. You're only dying because you're, make, you're killing yourself. You know, like, why do we as humans continue to do the same stuff that has clearly been destroying us? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's fear. Um, this might seem a little esoteric. I mean, all this probably seems, I don't know. It all, it makes sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense yeah, to anybody I, else. I, I'm with you, go for but it. But I remember I was watching some BBC nature documentary and I, in an instant, I understood our species so well and all of the terrible choices that we make. Because in this BBC nature documentary, there were some little monkeys in Africa at a watering hole and it was during a drought so the water like there was no water anywhere except for this one watering hole and the watering hole was filled with hippos and there were lions and there were alligators like it's the most dangerous place in the world because all the animals needed this water Mm. but also keep in mind the hippos and the alligators were peeing and shitting in what was already really dirty water so the water is disgusting but it's the only thing that could possibly keep these animals alive And here you have these monkeys who are about two feet tall hiding in a bush like 20 feet away from the water, terrified. And what they would do is every now and then one of them would run to the edge of the water, scoop up a handful of water, drink it, and run back and hope that one of these other giant creatures didn't kill them. And in an instant I was like, oh, those are our ancestors. Like scooping up shit water, trying not to get eaten. So of course we enter the, we're in the 21st century and we're just, we're afraid. We're still those scared monkeys in the bush. Mm -hmm. You know, like desperately grabbing for anything that will keep us alive for the next 30 seconds Mm. without any forethought, you know, without thinking about, is this sustainable? You know, is there a better way of doing this? Like we're still terrified primates. Is there, are there tools that you feel help people from moving out of that terrified primate reality because as as you've 
articulated, I mean, we, we have this sort of biological programming and, and almost a default operating system that goes back, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily serve us in many regards. And if you look based on reality, we are amidst a mass extinction and there are profoundly concerning indicators around us everywhere about our potential collective future. So that then begs the question, you know, what are poten- the potential tools in so insofar as we could wake up in a way. And this might also sound too esoteric or impractical, but I see it, I'm, I'm saying it in my head and I realize someone listening to it might just think like, oh my God, what is this nonsense he's talking <laughs> about? For me, it's neural architecture. Yeah. You know, and I like the brain, like if you look at the evolution of the brain, it follows the evolution of our species. Mm. And the newest, fresh, freshest most quote-unquote evolved part of the brain is the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that, as far as we know, is capable of making these longer-term executive decisions. Mm. You know, it's the part of the brain that says, oh, I might want to kill my neighbor, but I probably shouldn't. (laughs) You know, Mm. I might want to eat deep-fried food for the next six months, but you know what? I probably shouldn't. I might want to sleep with my neighbor's wife while smoking crack, but you know what? I probably shouldn't. That's the prefrontal cortex. It makes our good decisions. Mm. The more recessed part of our brains are the parts of the brains that do kill the neighbor, that do sleep with the neighbor's wife, that do smoke the crack, that do eat the deep fried food, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is we live in that, those places. And those are that part of the brain, the, the more unevolved, we'll call them, parts of the brain, are only concerned with short-term thinking. Mm. How do, you know, the question, that part of the brain, which is sort of, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to overgeneralize because I'm also not a neuroscientist, but like we'll call it the, the early limbic system mm. is concerned with, you know, how do I feel good right now? You know, and so if killing someone over a parking space makes you feel good right now, that's what people do. You know, if smoking cigarettes and sleeping with your wife's sister makes you feel good right now, that's what people do. Mm. And so the question is, practically speaking, it's either, I guess, twofold. How do you keep people from making those terrible decisions, which might involve you know, some degree of an autocracy, or how do you get people to evolve away from making those terrible decisions? The second part is what's really interesting to me. I mean, so that... I that, thought you were going to say that, like, yeah, you're like, the second part, that's interesting. authoritarian but, leader. But let's talk more about how we create an autocratic yeah, system yeah. of government. You know. No, but to the second point, so, I mean, this is actually what led me to, like, what... Because this question is a question I, I, I live in quite a bit. I mean, the Global Citizen was a platform massively simplifying based on how do we encourage a notion of our shared humanity and compassion in a different way using tools like music, which have such universality and, and a potential to draw mm-hmm. people together. But for me, in the same way that you're talking about this issue, it was like, okay, again, using a crass analogy, but take the lottery winner, right? Like many people in our culture win the lottery or professional athletes who get a, you know, a windfall of finance, but their mindset hasn't devolved and 80 to 90% of them actually go back to either their default income or bankruptcy Mm -hmm. because we can have a windfall of change in the world. But as you said earlier, if the if the internality doesn't match up with the externality, then inevitably it kind of goes back to default or sometimes even, even worse. And so for me, that was the idea with, with peak mind was like, okay, 
what could we, if we are amidst this mass extinction, and I'm going to go super esoteric here for a minute, but there's a mathematical cosmologist I love named Brian Swim, and he actually talks about the Earth being in this very unique band for, for the creative evolution as we know it of our species and the multitude of species. And then on a micro level, those species have evolved sort of commensurate with each other. Like the, the hawk and the rabbit have evolved in some ways because of their relationship. And, and my, my quandary is, is there, is given the stress that is being put on animals, the planet right now, is there a commensurate consciousness that can evolve unto itself in time for hum humans to, to continue to survive? The earth, I believe, will continue to survive. We've unfortunately decimated many species, but my the the to go back to the consciousness piece meditation was one practice that i found where it was like okay you can literally mm -hmm. monks knew this but also harvard now knows this you to those parts that bring your time about the amygdala you can literally decrease physically and also in terms of activity the size of your amygdala and increase the size and activity of your hippocampus in as little as eight weeks of designated mm -hmm. mindfulness practice and so to me i was like okay there are tools out there that could potentially speak to that second aspect uh, of, of potentiality, the non-authoritarian uh, evolution. Um, but I'm dramatically curious because I don't know the answers of what some of those other potential tools would be. Um, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I'd be fascinated if you did. Well, I mean, I have, based on my limited amount of research and experience, um, obviously certain types of meditation yep. just change the brain's relationship to stimuli, mm. you know, so we're no longer immediately reacting, mm. you know, grasping or reacting. Um, I almost wish meditation had a different word, though. I do the too. moment we say meditation... <laughs> Most people tune out. People are like, oh, you mean like people in Topanga who are like drinking mushroom tea and like going to Burning Man? I'm like, sure, that, that's nice. That's not available to the vast majority of people on the planet. Exactly. So I don't know if it's brain training or, but like it's, it's a really interesting question because the truth is, and it sounds like new age hippie nonsense, but it's true. We have to evolve. 100%. Or we die. Yes. You know, like there really isn't a middle ground, you know, like we, at, at our present rate of unevolved behavior, we're going to destroy ourselves in the only home we have. Yeah. It's just a given. And the only way we'll make better choices is either an autocracy of evolved people, which might, might not even exist, um, or the evolution of our species. It's possible. I sometimes think of the analogy of our species is like an addict at the end of a run. Mm. You know, like at the end of an addict's run, like when they're almost done drinking and doing drugs, like they're forced into recovery. You know, they're forced to accept, and I say this from experience, that the way they're living isn't working. Yeah. And then there's that next question, okay, what do I do next? And as a, but then you also hope that the addict survives that process. Because a lot of times, people don't get sober until they die or until they're so destroyed that they actually can't recover. And I just hope that our species is able to recover without being destroyed. So do I. But we need, like, so I would say that, like, because right now, a lot of the ways in which people discuss this, like the, you know, the evolution of consciousness, it's either 
very esoteric or very specific. Like someone's like, buy my product. It'll help, you know, like buy my binaural thingy for your app phone, whatever that will help <laughs> you. And it's like, but a, a general clinical but accessible handbook that showed that, mm-hmm. you know, that said, here are 50 practices that actually do lead to neural evolution, you know, because we know we have the data, Yeah. you know, so it's meditation, it's, I mean, like, because also in addition to the evolution, it's also calming down the stimuli. That's yes. the beauty of meditation, you know, like it both promotes like, nervous system. yeah, and so like engage in, and like, obviously everybody knows what engages the parasympathetic nervous system is everything from, you know, like a comfy bed to hanging out with friends to being well-fed to listening to music to going hiking to, like, a beautiful sunset. Like, that's easy. It's it's more the engaging the prefrontal cortex and neurological evolution. That's the more challenging part. And I think a lot of it is the willingness to change your relationship to stimulus and evidence, mm. you know, and nothing will get you crucified faster than telling people they should start paying attention to evidence because <laughs> people hate, like our species, it's like, it'll be on our tombstone when, when we're gone. Like, it'll just say like, here lies humanity. They really hated evidence. Mm. You know, they loved magical thinking. You know, all these people, even now, like the debate about healthcare, People are like, people should be allowed to smoke cigarettes and eat McDonald's and drink garbage and smoke crack, and we should then take care of their health care. I was like, here's an idea. What about encourage people not to do those things? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea to me. You know, like we hate evidence. We hate the idea that our choices have consequences. You know, how often do you have like someone who, and I don't want to sound like some crazy old libertarian because I'm neither of the, I might be crazy and old, but I'm certainly not a libertarian. (laughs) But like how often will someone say like, it's so unfair that they died. It's like, they smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. That's not unfair. That's actions have consequences. It might be very sad. Yes. We might mourn them, but certainly not unfair. You know, we have to have a willingness to accept actions have consequences. Yeah. You know? And we don't live, I think the, one of the major fallacies that we live under is that we can consume without, without consequence. Like, mm-hmm. in other words, like the more, you know, the, the sort of the promise of the more and the insatiable appetites that we're seeing kind of running rampant and, 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 and largely an American export in many ways. Now, now I think a global phenomenon, but that, that will consume our way to happiness. And I think what what you have came to a realization with yourself, uh, I, I in my own way, and still working through that realization, but there is no arrival through consumption, right? There is no happiness. You know, there's this fallacy we're sold that I'll, I'll be happy when. It, when. When I have the girl, when I have the car, when I have the home, when I have the pool in the backyard, you know, this, this sort of like always out there externality that just doesn't it doesn't equate to reality. And the, unfortunately, there are externalities in terms of consequences that bring all those things mm-hmm. into to bear in being, which c- frankly can't work if you have 9 billion people all looking to have the, the yeah, American Yeah, I mean, rate. you just summed up the problem facing our species. <laughs> exactly. You know. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how we get out of it. Uh, no, and you know, we've definitely had several of these conversations uh, over, the, over the dinner table, and I'm always curious about it. I don't either, but I... 
do feel like, and, and this, this goes to my own optimism, I do feel like there is an opportunity, and this, this may go to beyond evidence uh, in my own world, but I do think there's an opportunity where, there, where a consciousness will evolve um, that will enable us, if we all tap into it, to find the way out. Now, maybe I've watched too many Hollywood movies, or maybe that's a spiritual belief, but I do think if we do align collectively, there's a way to right the ship. But I'm definitively nervous that uh, we're, we're dangerously close to, uh, to tipping over. And I know issues that you deeply care about um, are ones that aren't necessarily held by the majority in terms of vastness, but there is sort of a waking up and specifically, obviously, animal rights being, to me, at least your core, at least as I understand it, core passions. But to me, there's something else there that I, that I have a curious about, curiosity about, and I noticed it in your, one of your newer tattoos, <laughs> which is a stand for the vulnerable. And to me, animals are an exemplification of the vulnerable, but I, but I also feel that there are, there are a lot of humans, for example, right now in mm-hmm. Syria, all over the world, not just in Syria, I mean, here in the U.S. But what is it that, and I've never asked you this question, what is it? in you that has a deep concern and stand for the vulnerable? I mean, on one hand, I would say psychologically, Mm. it's that I grew up very vulnerable, and I would argue that I continue to be vulnerable. You know, like we put on a good facade, but you go out into the world and it's like, you know, like more often than not, I feel exposed and vulnerable. Mm. But it's an interesting question, and I haven't really thought about it, because I've always like many people, been horrified when someone or anyone or a group of people abuses the defenseless and the vulnerable. You know, I mean, obviously, like, it's just, it, in a way, I would say it's part of our DNA, except it clearly is also part of our DNA to abuse the vulnerable. Mm. You know, like some, some humans are abusing the vulnerable, and hopefully the rest of us are horrified by that. Uh, I would say, this might sound a little odd, and it might definitely be a little esoteric, is especially regarding animals, but I'd say animals, children, you know, like the truly vulnerable and the defenseless is I think that largely they exist in a state of grace, whatever grace might mean to people. Grace meaning like an alignment with the divine. Mm. And animals in particular, like for example, if you watch let's say, a goat being attacked by a mountain lion. When the goat is being attacked, it doesn't want to be attacked, clearly. It's in pain. But, and I only say this from watching nature documentaries because I've never actually seen a goat being attacked by a mountain lion, but, like, you you watch, and what's funny is their eyes, there's acceptance. Mm. And I spend a lot of time going to vigils for animals who are about to be slaughtered, you know, pigs, cows, And what's in their eyes is confusion. Because I think a goat or an animal who's being killed as a part of a natural order of things, there's an acceptance that they're part of a system. They're part of a natural order. It's animals and creatures who are being brutalized that's separate from the natural order and the natural system. They're baffled. They're, They're horrified. They're in pain. But they're just confused. Like if you go to like a pig vigil, and you look in the eyes of these pigs who have been brutalized their entire lives and they're about to be slaughtered, they look scared, but more than anything else, they're existentially confused. Because they're like, why are these creatures betraying the divine? 
mm. you know, because throughout human history, there's been a lot of animal on creature on creature violence, but usually within, we'll call it like a context of grace, mm. you know, not, not cruel. You know, animals are not really cruel. They tend to just like they kill when they need to kill. Humans are cruel. We're barbaric. You know, we torture. We, you know, we invent, well, house cats as well, but like we largely invented this concept of like torture and mass slaughter. And I think the natural world is baffled by us. So that's, that's the only way I can describe it is like, it's sort of like at the very least, like humans, if you're going to kill something, kill each other you know kill like just let bad people kill bad people Mm. don't visit your evil on the innocent Mm. what i hear in that there there's quite a lot but what i hear is a stand really for the for the innocence what's interesting is as someone who i've known to be such to speak in such intellectual and rational terms it's the first time i've ever actually heard you speak in the word of divine i know you for example you grew up in the bible study and and but to, to use the divine order and, and, and that notion, which I actually resonate with deeply. I mean, it's interesting. Like when I, when I walk in here, um, not to make, I'm try, not trying to make it about me. It's just to say for me, nature, if someone says go to church, to me, go, going to nature is like going to church. Yeah, I had a, a funny experience with that. Um, and and I'm, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this. About five or six years ago, I had dinner with Sam Harris. Yeah. And in my ignorance, I didn't know who Sam Harris was. Uh, He'd been invited to dinner by our friend Steve, he and his wife, and we had this dinner. And during dinner, I started talking about the divine. And Sam, who I really like, he and his wife were so offended. And I was like, what? I just, I, I really like the word God, and I really like the word the divine. Keeping in mind, I have no idea what they mean. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. When I say God, I don't mean, like, there's no denomination attached to it. There's no specific identity. To me, it's like a convenient way of describing, as you mentioned, like, you know, what nature represents. All the, you know, like, and it was just funny that, like, I realized, like, oh, God and the divine are pretty loaded terms for most people. Perhaps I need to find better words. Like, I can't use these historically loaded, really contentious terms to describe what I see as like vague and unknowable. Mm. Um, But to me, I just, it's the idea that there is so much more outside of us and inside of us as well. It's Mm. basically my limited understanding of the divine or God or whatever is that it's... We're, it's this bizarre paradox. We are of it and separated from it, mm. you know, which is interesting. Like if you look at, you know, expulsion from the Garden of Eden on a metaphoric level, it's like we're kicked out of the divine, you know. Do you think we're truly kicked out or do you think that that's a human construct? This is an actual, uh, this is an actual curiosity because I would imagine, and like now we're going, we're going there, but for me at least, when I feel like I've experienced what is my own proximate appreciation for the divine, the closest thing I can use to articulate it is love and like the, the unconditional love. Like if I look at nature and I, and I see a tree or I see the sun or I see water, it gives without expectation, Mm -hmm. right? You know, it is, it's, there's no, there's no quid pro quo to that level of giving. And it's, 
you know, maybe I'm anthropom- you know, maybe I'm projecting that, it, that that's a love, but it, but it is, a, it sustains life. And so to me, um, I have a hard time. This is the part that I've, I've, I've had challenges with, with organized religion, not, not to I support anyone's belief in whatever they want to believe as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. But it, this notion of judgment, like hmm. oh, you can like you've fallen from grace or you've fallen like somehow you're out of, and I just can't, I just don't get down with that. Do you think that there is a set to, a separation or is it our I'm, projected reality? I think there is a separation. Okay, but I don't, I don't. I mean, who knows? Yeah, I certainly like I said like. I like to use the word the divine. Yes. I get a sense that there is something. Do you believe in something bigger than ourselves? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I don't know what it is. Yep. I don't know where it lives. I don't know. I doubt that it has a gender. I don't think it has a name. I still like to think about it. Yeah. And, you know, talk to it on occasion. Do you? Yeah. No idea if it listens or if it cares, but, like, still, I'd like to think it's there. Yeah. Um, I personally... So, like... There's an analogy someone made to me once that I thought was really appropriate. Mm. Like, if you scooped up a baby kitten and the baby kitten bit you and peed on you, would you be mad at the baby kitten? No. You'd be like, it's a baby kitten. That's what they do. I'm sorry. Like, you'd, you'd be like, so I just imagine whatever the divine is has to respond to us like that. Mm. You know, like, when we're terrible, whatever the div- my assumption, I could be very wrong, is the divine is like, I wish you wouldn't do that. But it's not anger. It's not judgment. It's more just sort of like frustration and sadness at the pain and the unnecessary nature of it, you know? Mm. Like, I just, the same way I don't think divinity cares about sports teams, (laughs) and I don't think that divinity cares about religions that behave like sports teams. You know, like, when people are like, go Broncos, go Jets, or go Christians, go Jews. It's like, no. The div- whatever the divine is, doesn't. it's not tribal and competitive. Mm-hmm. It cannot be. Yeah. It just can't. Like, by definition, if you're this crucible of life and you give birth to all life, you don't prioritize. Right. You don't say, like, oh, those humans that were born here, I like them better than the humans born there. It's like... There's, they have cells, they have central nervous system, they have eyes. Like, you don't prioritize one over the other. And the moment anyone tries to do that, it's very hard, but I feel like they, they, they're getting it wrong. Yeah. You know, like, it's not my place to judge, but, like, when people ascribe tribal, pernicious human behaviors to the divine, it seems like they're treading in really dangerous territory. But this notion of if there is... If there is this this presence, and I, the way I think about it is almost like when you were saying, like it would go like a, a like a kitten or like a parent watching their their child and know that it's going to like stub their foot and definitely or like their their knee definitely don't want it to happen, but kind of like ooh, you know, okay, like that level of. But I don't sense that 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 I don't sense that judgmental quality. I at least for me, I would. There might be profound. I mean, I'm sure that like. What, if there is a divine and it looks at people destroying the only home they have and it looks at people brutalizing one another, brutalizing animals, I can imagine the, desi- the divine being despondent mm. and frustrated and miserable, but also understanding like, oh, you're humans. Like, like 
you're a broken species. Until you're no longer a broken species, you're going to continue breaking the only home you have. Mm. Well, we, I know you, de- you care deeply, deeply about the planet and, and the multitude of species on this planet. In, in the next, and I know that you've had an incredible career in music and will continue to make music. But if you were to look at your legacy over this, this next chapter in life, whatever period that may be, call it 10, 20, whatever, 30, 40 years, what would you, what, what would you like the life's work in this next chapter to look like? And or what would you like the legacy of your work to be? Uh, to have a hand in stopping humanity from being so egregiously stupid. Mm. That's the, like, because everything else would follow from that. You know, like I would love to see a world wherein animals are no longer used by and for humans. But in order to do that, you got to fix humans mm. or get rid of them. You know, it's like those are only two options. You know, like so to have some sort of hand in just getting humans to stop making all these terrible choices. Mm. I don't know how I do that. I don't. I don't want. I don't. If I could do that, I want credit for it. Like I really have come to both respect that I have an ego and also not want to do anything to encourage it. Mm. You know, like ego leads to terrible, terrible stuff. Mm. You know, so I would rather like accomplish a lot and get no credit for it than accomplish little and get a lot of credit for it. Unless by getting credit, you inspire other people. Mm-hmm. Then okay, but it's a really hard one. You know, like and I, I know a lot of activists who claim to feel the same way. It's like, how do you do good in the world publicly without being consumed by your ego? Because mm-hmm. we know a lot of people who are very consumed by their egos. Oh, yeah. You know? And sometimes they do good things. But, like, I'm not skillful enough to feed my <laughs> ego, you know, and not be destroyed by it. Yeah. Well... That kind of brings me to a question I like to ask folks, and this is whatever the definition is for you. But, you, you know, you talked about the evolution of humanity. You also talked about the brain, its limitations, and its possibility. Um, for me, there's a deeply personal meaning to peak mind and why I, why I launched it. But what, what, does, what does the notion peak mind mean to you? Uh, evolution. Mm. Um, and necessary evolution, Mm. sort of what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, and it's, and I don't want to get in trouble with the world in which we live, um, but especially our community, but like a lot of spiritual seeking and ostensible progress to me feels very insular and selfish. You know, like we both know, and I I really don't want to sound like I'm judging because I'm sure I'm guilty of this as well, but like, people whose spiritual practice serves them. Mm-hmm. And I understand how seductive that can be. But my, the criteria for a spiritual practice for all action should be, does it create benefit for others? Mm. You know, and so peak mind is the necessary evolution of individual cognition and global cognition and consciousness to prevent us from making all the terrible choices and doing the terrible things that we're currently doing. Beautifully said. Um, I want to acknowledge you 
uh, because I've known you now for a few years and have had the, the pleasure of, of having several conversations with you. And I know you're not about feeding the ego, and this isn't intended in that way, but just to say, I think it's not often that someone can touch um, things that feed most people's egos in such a profound way and decide that that's not for them. And, and, and to, for lack of a better term, choose a different choice and, and work to be a stand for something um, that's bigger than themselves. Um, I always admire that in, in when I see it in others. But like I said, it's because I was so bad at being selfish. <laughs> and I yeah. really, I mean. Well, you came to it how you came to it, but I like the fact that at least you came to it. You know, some people are bad at it, but keep doing it anyway. You know, a lot of people keep kicking themselves in the, in the, in the head. And, you know, and, I, and I, I do appreciate the fact that you probably gave it a good college trial. And maybe if you were, if you were real good at it, you, you would have stuck with it. But thankfully uh, for me, and I think thankfully for, for many, you, cho- you didn't choose to keep kicking yourself in that way. And so I acknowledge the fact that uh, you've now dedicated yourself to being a stand for something bigger, and I, I, and I appreciate that. We all, we, I, I, I try. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and it's that I, I, I guess I was, where was I? Oh, I was with a bunch of people somewhere recently, and as we often do, there's sort of like this group question of like, oh, what is the thing about yourself that you know, like you're you you are most appreciative of? Yeah. Maybe it was in Cafe Gratitude, and maybe that was one of their dinner <laughs> one questions. Of their questions. I don't know. And it came to me, and I really had to think. And I was like, oh, persistence. Mm. It's the, oh, like, I think it's because I'm such an idiot, and I make so many mistakes, but I somehow keep going. Yeah. I don't do things well. I don't they do things strategically. I don't do things efficiently. But I'm like a little dung beetle. It just keeps pushing for, like it just keeps pushing. And hopefully, it's pushing in the right direction. But I realized, like, it and it and with persistence, you can also recognize, like, oh, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And I'm going to fail, and I'm going to screw up and do thing, do lots of stupid things. When I say mistakes, I mean like big mistakes, mm. idiot mistakes. But in the morning, you wake up and you keep going. Yeah. I think that's what we, we a lot of us need is that resilience, persistence, tenacity. W- w- those qualities to me are, are of the most uh, foundational for a life well lived. Because I know for me, there was a period where I just I didn't want to be persistent. And, um, and getting up and, and even on your dark days and seeing it through to, to, to hopefully the next day is uh, I think all many of us can do is, is sort of segment and hopefully get a little bit better each day. Yeah. So. I, and I like to think like if I was if this was a few hundred years ago and I was in a war, I would have been one of like the peasants, one of the foot soldiers. And it's like, oh, OK, you've been shot. You've lost a couple of limbs. You have dysentery. You've lost an eye. But somehow you just keep pushing forward, like just like <laughs> no matter what, just keep you just keep pushing. Yeah. You know, well, here's to all of us. Keep pushing. Thank you, Moby. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Moby as much as I did. Really got a tremendous amount of value from sitting with him and speaking with him. Um, Such an intellectual uh, human with such a heart for the planet and uh, and animals. And just love that he's sort of committing his, his life really to be of service and to, you know, 
basically channel his creative endeavors and the, the funds he makes off those creative endeavors to support that which he believes in. So I think that's a stand all of us can, uh, can resonate with. Again, um, so passionate about service. Um, if you enjoyed the episode uh, and you want to contribute, I, I'm doing a, a well in my father's name and in, in honor of his legacy through Charity Water with 100% of the proceeds going to provide uh, clean water to those in, in need. Uh, and so uh, I'll link to it below in the show notes or Google John Trainer Legacy. If you got value out of this episode, it would mean the world to me if you went ahead and left a, a review, a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, it's how the community grows and how this great message spreads and also how I'm able to get uh, some incredible guests on because, um, you know, they see what we're building here. So thank you guys so much for your energy, your attention. As always, you can uh, hit us up um, at Moby, at Michael Trainer on social media. Let us know your great takeaways from the episode. And uh, you can always, you know, send me direct feedback. Anything you'd like in terms of guests or feedback is always welcome. And uh, I'm so grateful for all of you. Please enjoy yourself. Stay safe out there. And please go out there and live your inspired life.